and welcome to the Iran Podcast. I'm Negar Murtazavi in Washington, D.C. This is another special episode about Iran's presidential election and what the results of this election means for the country's future. This episode was recorded at an online panel discussion hosted by the National Iranian American Council in Washington, and the panel was moderated by Sanam Shantiai. Hello and a very warm welcome to this really important, timely discussion brought to you by the uh, National Iranian American Council. I'm Sanam Shantier. I'm a journalist at France 24 and the host of our weekly uh, show about the region called Middle East Matters. I've been covering the Iran file for 17 years now. So it's my absolute pleasure to moderate this panel by NIAC, which is dedicated to educating and engaging the Iranian American community in a bid to advance peace and diplomacy, secure equitable immigration policies, and protect the civil rights of all Americans. Now, on the agenda today, and I really hope this is going to be an interesting discussion, we have this rather, some might say, polarizing topic, Iran after the Rouhani presidency. So we'll try and delve together into the June 18th election and what it really means for both the Islamic Republic and what it means for the country and its relationship with the international community. So with the panelists that I have, we'll be addressing the lineup of the candidates. And it wasn't a particularly long line, as you'll know, thanks to the Guardian Council's really stringent selection process, uh, which was even narrower than previously, which deemed impossible. But there we go. The voter turnout, which was a record low of around 48.8%, if I'm not mistaken, that's the lowest since the beginning of the Islamic Republic. The political dynamics, both domestically and with the international community, as I mentioned earlier, and whatever topics our panelists deem appropriate that they'd like to bring into the discussion. I'd like to now take the time to rather briefly introduce our speakers. Today, we're joined by one of my personal go-to analysts, Bijan Khajapur, who's a managing partner at uh, Eurasian News Partners, a Vienna-based international consulting firm. He's an expert on the Iranian economy, as well as the country's internal dynamics. Bijan is also a regular contributor to outlets such as our monitor. We also do host him on France 24, it's always a pleasure. Up next, uh, we have Shereen Malik-Zadeh, a visiting scholar at Colgate University, where he's completing a book, a manuscript on post-revolutionary schooling in Iran. His research background includes ethnographic fieldwork inside Iran, and uh, he has written about elections in the country rather extensively for outlets such as the Washington Post, The Atlantic, and The Guardian. Uh, I'm also delighted to be joined by Negar Mortazavi, economist for The Independent, who's also the host of the Iran podcast that you, I'm sure most of you are familiar with. Her area of expertise of Iranian affairs is US-Iran relations. In 2021, Negar was featured in Forbes magazine among 30 inspirational women. Now, last but not least, of course, we have Sina Tusi, a senior research analyst at NIAC, where he focuses on writing about Iranian politics, US-Iran relations, and uh, nuclear and security policy issues. His work is also vastly published in various outlets, including foreign affairs, foreign policy, and uh, USA Today. Now, I'm going to kick off this discussion. We try and make this as dynamic as possible. So I'll be posing it to the different panelists and at various stages, hopefully, they'll interject and contribute even more. Negar, let's kick off with the presidential campaign during which we really 
uh, I think, witnessed perhaps more than ever some serious mudslinging, in particular against uh, Abdul Nasser Hamati, a more moderate-leaning candidate, and by extension, President Hassan Rouhani and his legacy. Now, what's particularly interesting is that there was less focus on the impact of Donald Trump's maximum pressure campaign against Tehran. Would it be fair to say that this also had an impact on the results of the uh, June 18th election? Thank you, Sanam. Thanks to Nayak for hosting this great panel. And um, it's, it's, it's a timely discussion. I'm happy to be here. Um, that's a great question. I think the way the election and this very short campaign season was designed was to avoid any real competition to begin with for Ebrahim Raisi. Ebrahim Raisi ran back in 2017 for president. He lost to Hassan Rouhani. And we also know that him and part of the deep state, the IRGC and the security forces that he's close to within the hardline camp are trying to set him up for a position higher than the presidency, which is a successor to the Supreme Leader, potentially Iran's next Supreme Leader. So another defeat in this presidential election for Ibrahim Raisi would have been embarrassing. So the whole setup um, of the election seemed to be designed in a way to avoid any real challenge or competition to Raisi. And what was interesting was that, as you said, all the hardline candidates were also um, pointing all of their criticism at what's said as the Vaz-e-Mujud or the uh, status quo and sort of blaming the entire uh, situation of the economy, Iran's uh, political problems, even foreign affairs on the administration of Hassan Rouhani. And what was missing very much from uh, the discussions and the debates, if you can even call them debates, um, was this issue of foreign pressure, of the maximum pressure campaign uh, by the Trump administration, the crippling sanctions, and that Im the impact of that on Iran's uh, economic situation. I'm sure Bijan can explain that more. But the overall weakening and marginalization of the moderates and the reformists, which happened under the shadow of maximum pressure, and maximum pressure wasn't only sanctions, it also included military escalation with Iran, the assassination of top General Soleimani, the assassination of a top science, nuclear scientist, Fakhrizadeh, all of that added to a securitization and closing of the political space inside Iran, a move more toward a hardline uh, political direction, and eventually this consolidation of power by the hardliners in an election that by surprise, even the hardliners weren't really going for, for high participation. It just seemed like they were going um, for a guaranteed victory. I was saying, Nega, let's go back to the original question, if we can, to the base of it. In your opinion, how much pressure, and let's focus on that, if we can, did the maximum pressure campaign have on the results of the election? Do you think that it was left out of the conversation more than it should have been, essentially? I think it was definitely left out of the conversation. As far as quantifying how much the impact it was, I think it's difficult um, to, we haven't seen real numbers, but I think it was definitely a determining factor in just in general, as I said, weakening the moderate mandate, the pro-diplomacy camp, the reform idea within the system or through the ballot box. And then of course, 
that combined with the hardline policies of the deep state, of the core of the hardliners, the mass disqualification of candidates, basically even those who would be interested in a change through the ballot box didn't really see a viable candidate or an option um, to vote for, to participate in the election. So I think the general, this deep voter apathy, frustration and anger at the entire system combined with all of this pressure, military sanctions from the outside. And then obviously the hardline policies like disqualification of the Guardian Council um, led to what we saw as the result of this election. Thank you so much, Nagar. Shervin, Nagar just mentioned this, quote, weakening of the moderate mandate. And I want to speak about that specifically to you. You know, the election itself, as it's been mentioned by both Nagar and myself, was, I would say it was unlike anything I've ever seen in, in my lifetime of covering uh, the Iranian vote. It was mentioned no prominent reformists or centrist uh, candidates were permitted to run. We had, of course, among them very well-known Hassan Khomeini, the grandson of the leader of the Iranian revolution, who reportedly actually pulled out um, at the behest, at the request of Iran's Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei. And then we had the likes of Ali Larijani, Eshab Jahangiri. They were barred by the powerful Guardian Council. So naturally, we're seeing that many are calling this what it is, right. an engineered election. For you, does this represent the decline, or even if we have to take it a step further, the end of the reform movement and looking further ahead, a turning point in the Islamic Republic? No, I don't think by any means it's necessarily the end of the reform movement. I mean, the reformists or what became the reformists were sent out to the wilderness in the early 90s, right? And they came back in a big way in 97. And in fact, since 97 to the present, I mean, to the point you were making about the elections we've seen since we've been watching, I assume since Khatami, at least is perhaps what you were referencing, we haven't seen an election below 70%, minus one, right? 2005, the Ahmed Najad, especially the second round against Rafsanjani. And I think many people took that as a big mistake, right? That was a mistake and we will never as reformists or people in the opposition, uh, even if you don't agree with the Nizam, you know, participation is better than at staying at home. So for me, the really important question is, why did so many people stay at home? And is it tied to this decline of the reform movement or the closing of uh, the possibility that reformists or centrists or moderates, I mean, these categories are very fluid at this point, uh, would be allowed to run? And I think <laughs> this election for me personally, it took them 12 years, right? If we measure since 2009 for the, the anti-reform movement, the more principalist elements of the Iranian system to finally figure out how to keep people who can catch on fire during the election, who can prevail in a kind of wave fashion as Khatami, uh, Musavi, and Rouhani did, uh, 97, 2009, 2013. Um, they, might, they finally figured it out. It took over a decade, I think. And um, you know, there's an important question, why did that happen and what will happen in the next election, which I don't personally have answers for. I have a theory as to why it was done for this particular election. Um, uh, before I make that point, though, I do want to remind everybody, and I'm sure most of our listeners will know this, you know, nobody expected Musavi to do anything, right? I mean, he totally caught on fire, a very uncharismatic figure who became, who rose to the moment in 2009. And the same can be said about uh, Rouhani, who was polling in the single digits early on. But by the time the debates came around, he blew up and he won in the first round pretty handily um, with a very large turnout despite the fact that four years earlier, we'd seen the violence of the green movement uh, suppression. So uh, this year they figured out, keep those 
possible range of candidates who could catch on fire. Hemati was not going to be that guy out of the picture. And I suspect that what we're seeing, this goes back to what Negar was mentioning, uh, we're seeing an authoritarian state in transition, right? Or preparing the ground. Uh, Bourgerdi is, uh, Merzard, our friend Merzard Bourgerdi has written a lot about how Khamenei has prepared the terrain for his uh, eventual demise. I mean, he will die eventually, right? Um, and I think the idea that Raisi is, if not to be the next leader, at least a kind of caretaker or a kind of stabilizing force as Iran transitions, you know, Pali Sai is really keen on pushing this idea that authoritarian states have a hard time transitioning to the next, you know, transitioning of power, transitioning power. And I think that the decision to, to abandon this principle of high turnout to stick it to the Americans, which is to me really surprising and fascinating, uh, maybe just a temporary maneuver uh, as we go into the next election. But I could be totally wrong on that point. But that's my sense of it. Yeah. Sharon, you, you make a really good uh, point and you ask a good question. You asked why. Why uh, was the election turnout so low, record low, as I mentioned, of 48.8%? Uh, just to give our listeners an idea, I'm sure most of them are aware of this, more than half of voters actually chose not to cast their ballot. And what I want to ask you is not so much the why, but in your opinion, the what that means. Would you oh, yeah. say this is itself in a way, a big message to the establishment. You oh. know, we even saw Zeh Hashemi going on in Clubhouse and she went as far as saying this was a referendum with a majority of people in Iran saying no to the status quo. Um, Bijan, in a great article, recently pointed out that the effective turnout rate is probably 42%. Second place was spoiled ballots, right? I think it was 12%. So 30 million Iranians did not vote. A 29.5, 28.5 did vote. Um, Another friend of ours, who I'll say I'll leave unnamed, he pointed out this is all a big middle finger, or in the Iranian case, a thumb, I guess, um, to the to the Nizam. And you know what? When I was thinking about this to prepare for this event, I realized that actually all the votes that I've witnessed personally in Iran, I was there in 2009, 2013. You know, these are joyful occasions, at least in the build up to 2009, and certainly after 2013. I mean, I can't express enough how happy people were in the streets, right? Um, square pants, uh, SpongeBob, a guy dressed up in outfits, you know, crazy outfits showed up, people were dancing. But beneath that joy, I think even those elections, redeeming the 2009 vote in 2013, the election of Rouhani in 2013, et cetera, I think they really express a kind of anger. I mean, if you listen to the chants that were in the streets in 2013, we got your vote back, Musavi, Musavi, we got your vote back. And for me, the meaning, what draw, what gives me meaning for the absence of voters in this election is their presence in elections that they did not have to participate in. And in fact, nobody expected them to participate in. And so I don't think those two things can be separated. I think a lot of folks are rushing to say, oh, this shows that nobody believes in the system in Iran anymore. No, in fact, by not showing up, you're demonstrating to the system the dissatisfaction that you feel as a possible participant. Uh, and the fact that many of these people did participate since 1997, or at least since 2009, uh, I think is evidence of that, of what I'm I'm claiming here. Uh, Bijan, I'm going to bring you into the conversation, if I may. It was interesting uh, for Shervin, and I'm sure there are many that don't don't necessarily agree with this view. It's not a case of a referendum on the Iranian regime, and this is what I want to come to you with. Some are arguing that. Um, as we speak, the distance between the Iranian government and the people has been increasing even prior to these elections for some time now. And we've seen everything from rather scattered 
at times violent anti-government protests across the country. We had the downing of the Ukrainian passenger plane by Iran's military. We've seen a spate of, of course, arbitrary arrests, more restrictions on social freedoms. Where do you stand on this? Would you say that Iranians are indeed disillusioned, they're deeply unhappy? Or would you say, actually, no, they still very much believe in the system? Um, I don't think we can uh, just have one one unified answer about all the Iranians. I think the Iranians uh, can be divided into different groups. Um, just to give you one, one sample uh, from this recent election, uh, there was a poll uh, that asked the question whether the candidates actually represented the people uh, in their political views, and only 25% of the Iranian society felt represented by the four remaining candidates on the ballot. Uh, 75% uh, did not feel represented, but it doesn't mean that they would have not felt represented if uh, Ali Larijani and Esar Jahangiri and Mustafa Tajzadeh would have been on the ballot as well. So it's so we are looking actually at two different um, processes here. One, how the political establishment and political elite uh, is behaving. And I agree with Sherwin, this is a, and uh, I would describe it in a different way. I would say this is a revolutionary state that wants to tran transition to, a, to being a normal state. This is important to understand. And normalcy uh, is defined very differently for different people. We may say normalcy would be, you know, more democratic representation, greater uh, political freedoms, etc. For a multi-ethnic, complex society and country like Iran that is in a very insecure neighborhood, normalcy may be a powerful state that is not afraid of external and internal threats. How do you provide that? by controlling the political processes, by not risking anything. As, as Negar said, they did not want to risk, or Sanam, you said it yourself, that, that uh, you know, Raisi would not be elected. So this is one, one process that's taking shape. There is another process, in my view, within the society. And we can either go back to 1997 and, and understand how the society has emerged in terms of influencing political developments in the country, or we can just go back to 2009. In any case, there is a trend. There is, there is engagement, there is disappointment, there are protests, and then the conclusion that street protests and violence is not going to help us. Again, engagement, as Sherwin said, 2013, they come back, they say, we got the vote back. Uh, then, they also feel that they made the right decision in Rouhani because the JCPOA happened, sanctions were lifted. There was a new era of, you know, uh, relationship with the global community. But then an external factor, in this case, Trump comes and disrupts this whole process. Um, and, and then again, a, a new wave of uh, disillusionment, uh, alienation with the political process. So we have a society here that, in my view, still wants to be politically engaged, but is looking for um, tools for political engagement. It was very interesting. I, uh, I tweeted at one point saying, uh, participating in the vote is a way of um, uh, political engagement, as a way of dialogue. And as long as we say, 
we don't want a violent upheaval. Dialogue and engagement is the way to go. Someone responded very in intelligently. He said, not voting is also one way of political engagement. That's also a dialogue, it's communicating dissatisfaction uh, because there are no other ways of communicating that dissatisfaction. And this is the space where we are, you know, the Iranian society looking for ways of engaging, but engaging by rewriting the rules of the game, rather than, uh, you know, always participating in the elections the way the Guardian Council sets them up, to come up with other maybe online space of engagement, other engagement. And one thing that I, I personally uh, believe is that uh, while we have this sort of regression of democratic values and, and political space on the national level, there is an interesting opening of political space on the local level. And this also will create new areas of engagement, even though the national politics is, is limiting the space. Thank you for that, Bijan. I'll bring Sina into the conversation. And if, and if I can ask the panelists to keep your responses to two, three minutes max, because we're already almost halfway through the uh, discussion. So that would be wonderful. Sina, we've been, let's zoom in if we can together. We've been speaking about Raisi. We have um, a president here who will be in a way uh, inheriting a host of challenges, everything from this um, inheriting a battered economy, uh, which is a result of a sanctions, but of course, additionally mismanagement and mass corruption inside the Islamic Republic. And as we've seen across the globe, the economy has been exacerbated, the situation certainly, by the global health crisis, by the pandemic. How do you think someone like him will handle that? So Raisi does, he comes at a critical time, obviously, for the Islamic Republic with this low turnout, the kind of legitimacy crisis that it does pose to a large extent. He's at a juncture where his presidency could really heavily influence the future of Iran, the Islamic Republic, and, and the, you know, the sustainability of this system. And Raisi, if he chooses to go in a more exclusionary path, a more iron-fisted path, uh, you know, this alienation of this large segments of society will increase. If he decides to as he's been saying, he said in his campaign, he said in his press conference that, you know, a, a somewhat more inclusive path that kind of uh, in, his in his cabinet, if he potentially brings other elements of the system, reformists, other people, and tries to create some sort of consensus government, that'll, that'll be a, 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 a big change. But Raisi, if his past is any telling, you know, he comes from the Iranian judiciary. He is someone who has a history of a, he doesn't have kind of managerial executive experience. He's been a judge and he has a host of human rights abuses. Uh, most notoriously was his role in the 1988 kind of mass executions of political prisoners and opponents of the Islamic Republic at the end of the Iran-Iraq war, where we had, you know, the last time Raisi ran for president in 2017, around that time, a tape from the 1988 era was leaked. And in this tape, uh, the then successor to the founder of the Islamic Republic, who was Ayatollah Khomeini, but his, his designated successor at the time was Ayatollah Montazidi. And in this leaked tape, Montazidi is speaking to Raisi and three other individuals who are part of this committee, uh, kind of overseeing these, these prisoners and kind of their sentences. And he was put, you know, he was, he was castigating them and really censuring them 
over their role in these executions, telling them not to you know, go ahead with these executions and saying that they're going to be remembered as the criminals of history. So this is the kind of record that he's, he's bringing into the judiciary. So, you know, and if he chooses to you know, pursue this kind of path as president, of kind of arrests, executions, silencing dissents with an iron boots, you know, this, the Islamic Republic is, you know, this legitimacy crisis is going to, is going to increase the distance between society and the regime is going to increase. Um, but, and Raisi, I mean, the main issue right now is that, you know, Iran has a host of challenges, ec- severe economic problems, problems, severe problems on foreign policy. And to resolve these problems requires pragmatism. And if, you know, Raisi, many of the people who supported him, many of his allies are among Iran's most kind of ideological, theocratic diehards. And so I think when it comes to the policies that he will enact, the cabinet he forms and the people he actually forms in his presidential administration, that's going to be very telling. If he brings in a lot of these more ideological diehards that are, that are not pragmatic and, and don't really have the kind of backgrounds necessary to overcome these challenges, this crisis, I think, will deepen for the Islamic Republic. Bijan, um, you're the economist amongst us, so I'm going to bring that question to you. The core of that question was more about uh, your thoughts on Raisi's potential approach to the economy. Uh, well, uh, he had a press conference today, um, and he said that uh, he will um, make sure that corruption and mismanagement are eradicated from the Iranian government. Obviously, it's a very tall order. Uh, if this really would happen, in, 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 in fact, just uh, relative improvement of the governance structures and the, the sort of incompetence that, it, that exists in Iran, in, in the Iranian government, would certainly help. I don't see um, uh, a lot of great ideas there. I mean, they, they talk about it. They talk about, for example, uh, containing the the sort of uh, liquidity growth in the economy or creating jobs or building houses and so on. But the problem in Iran has always been that economic uh, challenges or economic problems uh, emerge because of the um, political inefficiencies, the way the system is structured. For example, Despite privatization and despite all the sort of uh, economic reforms over the past couple of decades, the government is still the biggest economic player. Uh, and if you are in, a, in an economic uh, decline, like Iran has been over the past few years, um, and you want to create jobs and, and grow as an economy, your largest economic player has to invest. So this whole notion of, okay, we are going to make sure that the government is smaller and more efficient and so on, it doesn't go hand in hand with economic growth. So you need genuine structural um, reforms, but I don't see those reforms coming from the uh, Raisi government. I see a lot of populist uh, plans emerging. Having said that, if the JCPOA is restored, and this is an important fact to consider, If the JCPOA is restored and Iran suddenly can access its hard currency reserves around the world and export more more oil and repatriate that money, that in itself will create an economic momentum, which has nothing to do with Raisi, uh, but it may generate a good feeling about the economy for a while. 
Thank you for that, Bijan. And Negar, I'm going to come to you very briefly. Uh, I'm just going to pose a follow-up uh, question to Bijan, but I'll come to you very uh, momentarily about the JCPOA. Bijan, um, this is a question that's coming from me, and I've just noticed that it's popped up on the Q&A board. Uh, what sort of a relationship, and this is also alluding to what Sina mentioned very accurately earlier, what sort of a relationship can we expect someone like Raisi to have with the international community, given that, again, I'm repeating uh, Sina here, the fact that he's sanctioned uh, by the United States for his part in the 1988 killings. He's also sanctioned by the EU over human rights violations. And of, it seems that this topic of removing him from these punitive measures is going to really be at the center, if not dominate the nuclear talks. It sounds like Iran is not budging on that particular topic, would you say? I agree. I, I don't see uh, uh, President Raisi or President-elect Raisi traveling to any of the Western countries, but there, Iran has such a uh, sort of fragmented power structure that there can be a division of labor. I mean, I can, I can, I can vision uh, Raisi in Moscow and Beijing and maybe in some of the regional capitals, but depending on whom he uh, appoints as his foreign minister or maybe other, maybe even a vice president, uh, if, if uh, that person, that individual is an acceptable figure, there would be some of the relations would be uh, sort of shifted to other figures within the structure. Uh, but it's, it's clear that Raisi will be a controversial figure in, in Western capitals. Negar, speaking of that controversial figure, um, we do have Raisi coming into power. Do you think he and his presence in any way is going to have an impact on the nuclear negotiations? You know, the man at the helm of those talks, as we all know, is Javad Zarif. And he has said that uh, he has the same negotiating mandate as before. And that will continue certainly into August when Raisi takes uh, power, but also based on some unconfirmed reports that we've seen from various news outlets, even for a few months under Raisi's power. How do you think that dynamic's gonna play out? Well, Sanam, we are expecting diplomacy, especially between Iran and the West, to be more complicated and difficult with a hardline president like Raisi. And the closest reminder is the years of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. But I think the case of the nuclear deal is a little bit special compared to any other issue that, for example, President Biden has signaled he wants to do follow-on talks on. The nuclear deal is already in place. This is essentially the negotiations in Vienna are for a return to an already existing deal. And I, and my understanding is that the diplomats have been fairly successful in isolating these negotiations from the political events of the various countries. Um, and it could survive a Raisi presidency, the deal, if especially if they bring it to the finish line before the actual change of administration in August, like you mentioned. But we know the nuclear deal had the approval of the Supreme Leader and even Raisi, even though he comes from the camp that was very much vocal and against the nuclear deal in the JCPOA, he has been signaling publicly that he would support the deal. So I think that continuity is something we can expect when it comes to the JCPOA, but anything beyond the JCPOA on the nuclear program or issues other than the nuclear deal, Iran's regional policy, the missile um, program, and other issues that both the Americans and also Europeans are interested to discuss with Iran is going to be 
complicated and more difficult with a hardline president, possibly a hardline foreign minister, and also a negotiating team, which everyone is reminded of how Saeed Jalili was pushing uh, nuclear negotiations on the Ahadinejad in, in comparison to the Javad Zarif team. Shervin, uh, Nagar has been building this really clear picture of what seems to be an intricate, complicated path that lies ahead when it comes to certainly the nuclear deal. We've seen in Iran, and I want to look at the dynamics inside the country, because obviously that's the area that you follow very closely, that many conservatives inside the Islamic Republic speak about neutralizing the impact of these punitive measures as opposed to negotiating with the US, which some of them, and I'm talking about the more hardline elements, um, some of them don't believe that certainly negotiating with the international community would fall in line with the revolutionary values. Could that be something that Raisi could contribute to and opts for? Uh, certainly, of course, with the permission of the Supreme Leader, because we know who's actually really at the helm, because the president himself does have some room for maneuvering. So how involved is he going to be in the process and how much of an impact do you think he'll have? I mean, I think his standing or his position, I mean, he's described as a kind of ultra conservative in our press here, at least in the U.S. Um, I'm not sure what they're saying in France, right? Um, and I think that totally misses the mark. I mean, he is a traditional conservative. And again, these categories are very fluid. Yesterday's hardliners, today's reformists and vice versa. Um, but I suspect that his his approach, I mean, and his contributing influence will be on maintaining this idea. I mean, I've, in my writings, at least, I've steadfastly held that Iran's uh, a kind of foreign policy approach or attitude towards at least the region, certainly, if not the beyond to the Western powers, is uh, the maintaining and preservation of the sovereignty of Iran, right? I mean, to me, this revolution is about preserving a kind of authenticity which will enable that preservation of Iran as a country. The revolution's purpose is to do that, I think. And I think Raisi falls very neatly into that uh, camp and approach. So negotiations with the U.S., um, you know, anti-imperialism defines the identity of many of these more conservative elements of the regime. But it, at the end of the day, for them, I think personally, I'm guessing here, but I think ultimately in terms of legitimacy, uh, it comes down to what will it take to preserve Iran, to keep Iran from uh, you know, suffering the the calamities that it suffered in the early, I mean, go back to the early 19th century. But these are very uh, live and vivid kind of memories, I think, for many Iranians. Certainly my parents can list off all the places that Iran lost, you know, because of the Treaty of Turkmenchai or Golestan or whatever. Uh, I'm not sure if younger folks still uh, think that way, but um, I think any politician, regardless of the regime type, has to contend with that in terms of what the people want, right? And apart from the economics and this other stuff, freedoms, personal freedoms, these are very important. But I think at the end of the day, uh, Iran, do, 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 Iran, you know, the, I mean, just look at soccer matches, right? Um, I think this is really what Raisi will be able to uh, help out with. I don't think those elements who are committed to opposing the U.S. at all costs are going to be as influential as uh, perhaps some people think here in the U.S. Thank you so much for your insights. I want to come to uh, Sina now. Sina, um, I want to widen our vision a little bit, if we can, together, and look beyond the JCPOA, the nuclear deal. Um, how do you think the results of these elections with someone like Raisi at the helm will affect foreign policies as a whole? You know, we have a country where Traditionally, it's not a monolithic society. This is something that Bijan referred to earlier. You do have disagreements. You do have different camps, certainly on foreign policy issues between Iran's diplomatic corps and, and uh, the military commanders that tend to be more of hardline nature. Uh, 
we saw this really a, a clear example of this was that leaked video audio recording even by Iran's Foreign Minister Javad Zarif. How do you think someone like uh, Raisi will try and handle this divergence, this difference, this internal conflict, if we can call it that? Yes. Um, I think when it comes on the broader foreign policy ramifications of Raisi's presidency, a lot of it comes down to obviously the role of the presidency in the system and on foreign policy. And many, you know, yes, you know, Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khamenei is the final arbiter on these broad strategic decisions, but the presidency does play a significant role. And the presidency, you know, by nature of kind of appointing kind of uh, cabinet uh, members, having a role in the makeup of the Supreme National Security Council, uh, helps to shape the kind of uh, the decisions on foreign policy, on these broad foreign policy uh, kind of inclination of Iran. And, you know, even the supreme leader, for example, is persuadable. And, you know, who the president is affects, you know, his approach to a lot of these issues. And we saw under Rouhani, where Rouhani and Javad Zarif, they helped push for consensus, consensus on the JCPOA. They, were, they leaned towards kind of diplomacy with the West, pushing for diplomacy for, with the West, kind of political solutions in the region. And as you mentioned, Sanam, the, the leaked Zarif tape really brought to the fore a lot of these the differences that existed between like the Rouhani administration and other powerful institutions in Iran, namely the Revolutionary Guards and kind of their preferences for foreign policy. And Zarif said in that tape that, you know, on a lot of these issues that the battlefield commanders and the battlefield had its preferences uh, met and achieved over what the diplomatic corps in Iran wanted. Uh, with that said, you know, you know, obviously the JCPOA happened and, you know, the Rouhani administration pushed hard for that to happen. And Zarif in his tape said that, you know, hardliners in Iran tried to oppose that and obstruct it and kind of sabotage it. But for Raisi, I think this division is going to be eliminated largely. Raisi does come from the camp that is, you know, very closely aligned with the IRGC and kind of, you know, directly with, you know, Khamenei's vision more or less is for the region. And so I think that's that division that had existed, you know, very transparent, you know, very openly by the end of the Rouhani administration between Rouhani and Zarif and the rest of the system, that's going to be decreased and there will be a more kind of unified, consistent approach from Iran. But with that said, I don't, you know, the broad dynamics of Iranian foreign policy, the strategic inclinations, there's no sign that that's going to change. Raisi, you know, the JCPOA and kind of certain, these regional talks right now we're seeing with Iran and Saudi Arabia, these are broad systemic decisions at this point. Khamenei supports them, the Supreme National Security Council supports them, and Raisi, both during the presidential debates and in his press conference earlier today, signaled support for the JCPOA in the talks, kind of echoed Khamenei's rhetoric. He also said that there's no obstacles to Iran normalizing its relations with, with Saudi Arabia. But I think where the difference comes into play is that, you know, Rouhani and Zarif did push for deeper ties with the West, tried to engage the West. And they were spurned, you know, they were discredited and with, by Trump kind of leaving the JCPOA. And with Raisi, we're not, we're, you know, we're not going to see that. And even today, for example, when on the issue of kind of negotiations with the West and the U.S. on Iran's missile program, on Iran's regional influence, Raisi said, you know, no, no, no negotiations on these issues, no meeting with Joe Biden. So I think in terms of broader negotiations, there will be a cap. And the JCPOA may, may end up being the ceiling for, for U.S.-Iran diplomacy under Raisi presidency. But a lot of, you know, the regional talks between the countries and kind of the opportunity for regional de-escalation and engagement with, you know, Ray Isi, uh, 
led Iran with him as president is possible. Thank you, Sina. Sina just made some really interesting points there, one of which was that the Rouhani administration was seeking diplomacy with the West. Uh, I'm going to take a question from uh, the Q&A here, and I'm opening it up. Let me know whoever wants to take this one. So it's extending that a little bit beyond the West. Will someone like Raisi see closer relations with Russia and Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping of China um, and try and take advantage of the situation in that sense? Uh, who would like to take that? So we're looking beyond the Iran scope of the West. Bijan, please go ahead. First of all, I just want to make a short comment about what Sina said. Uh, don't forget uh, the situation in Iran is very fluid. Just sometimes go back and revive, uh, uh, revisit all the statements when Ahmadinejad became president. How every, the whole system would be aligned and everything would be then resolved. Well, it came very differently. And the reason is that Iran, all of these individuals, whether it's Raisi or Ahmadinejad or Rouhani, they, they represent different networks rather than a clear, clear-cut agenda and strategy. And because these are networks, the question is, what's the interest of those networks? We know that the networks behind Raisi uh, look at Putin's Russia and also Erdogan's Turkey as, as model states. You know, this is what they would like to do it, you know, control uh, the sort of uh, upper echelons of, of, of power and, and, and uh, you know, create some space for your own network to benefit from different developments as such. Uh, I think, yeah, I said I can imagine Raisi in Moscow being, you know, greeted by by Putin. And Putin, by the way, was the first international figure to call him and congratulate him, you know, after his his election. Uh, China is a continuation of the the regime decision, in my view, which was a response to to the failure of the JCPOA over the past few years. Uh, Iran-China agreement sets a framework. It's would have been continued disregarding of who would have won the elections. And I think Raisi would continue that. But a lot of other decisions, foreign policy, regional decisions, will also depend a lot on the various bargaining processes between the different networks in Iran. So let's not look at Raisi alone, but on the sort of interplay and the composition, overall composition of power between these networks. Sanam, can I add a quick comment to that? Um, very quickly, if you can, yes. It's, it's the, I, I agree with Bijan. I just want to add that even his travels physically, the logistics to the West is going to be complicated. As mentioned, Raisi has been sanctioned by the U.S. I don't even think he can come to New York for a U.N. General Assembly, which is something that's been popular with Iranian presidents in the past. His travels to Europe for any form of bilateral or engagement is going to be complicated. He's accused of gross violations of human rights. So naturally, when you don't have that kind of westward looking when it comes to the economy and trade, um, the East, China and Russia and these other countries, as Bizan mentioned, would become more important and take priority. Sharon, I'll come to you now. So China and uh, Russia potentially taking more of a center stage, as it's just been mentioned by some of the panelists. Sina earlier very briefly alluded to uh, the fact that Tehran and Riyadh have been uh, trying to negotiate with each other. Talks are ongoing. This is mediated by Baghdad. How do you think that's going to develop or regress even under a Raisi administration? Um, <laughs> I mean, I suspect that there's so much ambiguity around the relationship between Riyadh and Tehran, right? Um, in the sense that 
uh, again, they're positioned as these sort of uh, diehard enemies who are cannot be reconciled um, in terms of their national interests and regional interests. Uh, but nonetheless, lines of communication uh, will break, but then will uh, be reestablished. And I think um, I, I suspect that the the I'm not entirely uh, qualified to answer this question fully, but my sense is that uh, Iran's position will continue to be one of presenting as a kind of model of Islamic governance and leadership in the region. Um, and, you know, that will require not necessarily a kind of active hostility towards Saudi Arabia, but uh, a desire to create a, at least some sort of detente. Um, and I suspect that the policies or the, the kind of efforts made by Zarif in recent years uh, will continue under the current regime. Again, because, I mean, again, my first principle is, uh, as I stated in the earlier comments, um, what are in the best interests of Iran's national interests? Um, so I'm putting aside this idea of a kind of ideological or export of revolution kind of uh, mentality um, and focusing more on this sort of realpolitik, at least where this is concerned, this particular issue is concerned. Thank you, Sharon. Sina, I'm going to come to you. We have a question from the Q&A segment, and it falls in line with, with what we're discussing. Uh, the question is, any idea who Raisi might be choosing for foreign minister? It seems to me, um, I will not mention the who, who the me is because we can't verify the users in any way. It seems to me this may be the key to predicting what demeanor the Islamic Republic will bring to general diplomacy and what kind of face it will present to the outside world. Merci. Yeah, it's a great question. And, and like I said, you know, the cabinet he forms, his personnel will, will kind of inform his policy and we'll get a better idea of like the kind of approach he's going to take the governance and foreign policy. On the post of foreign ministry, which is very important for foreign minister, uh, it's unclear. I mean, there's a lot of speculation out there. Some people say potentially uh, like Amid Abdullahian, who was Iran's former deputy minister towards the Arab and Middle East, Arab world and Middle East. And he's been an advisor to uh, Mohammad Bagar Qalibov, the Speaker of Parliament. He's more aligned with the conservative camp, but also worked under Zarif for many years with more of a regional expert. And for example, Raisi has really emphasized actually in his public rhetoric that he, he wants to try to, you know, his focus is going to be on enhancing relations with Iran's neighbors. So maybe Abdullahian could be a, a significant contender. Others that are mentioned are Ali Baghiri, who served in, in Ahmadinejad's foreign ministry, uh, also comes from Iran's conservative camp, was critical of kind of a lot of the negotiations that led to the JCPOA and the Rouhani administration's approach. Someone like Saeed Jalili, who, you know, was a presidential contender at this time again. Uh, you know, he was Iran's former chief nuclear negotiator under Ahmadinejad. He's kind of uh, in the West, his reputation is that he was very intransigent, very hard to negotiate with. Negotiations did not progress under him. And he dropped out of this recent race in favor of Raisi. So people are speculating that maybe, you know, he's, he's been, he might get a senior post. And I think if someone like Jalili were to get that post, it would be a strong signal that he's going to have a, as you know, many expect, a hardline approach with the West. And, you know, it's going to have a cap on any kind of engagement with the West. Thank you, Sina. A number of options on the table. That was super insightful. I'm going to come to Negar now. And I think uh, anyone who follows this Iran story is aware that many uh, observers and analysts have been saying that these elections are uh, as much about electing a president as they are about the issue of succession. Uh, Negar, this is essentially the issue of succession is what will have the greatest impact on the Islamic Republic as we know it. 
as I mentioned, observers saying that Raisi's victories increased potentially his chances of succeeding Khamenei as supreme leader after he passes away. Do you share this vision? How do you see this playing out? That's, I think that's a, a very important issue. And that's what one of the reasons why this election was so consequential and precisely why that part of the deep state didn't want to risk it by bringing extra competition into the race, as Shervin was explaining. But we have to remember that even the hardline camp is not one unified body. And we saw the divisions when Ahmadinejad came into power. We're probably going to see more divisions. We saw a little bit, a glimpse during this short election season. There were five hardliners running. Um, and we're going to see more divisions when Raisi comes into power. There's definitely a camp, a very powerful camp, close to the core of the IRGC, security forces, intelligence forces, that want and have been trying to groom Raisi, basically, as the successor to Ayatollah Khamenei when they reached out to him to run in 2017 as president, and now this time around basically clearing any competition. But I think there, there's also divisions within the hardliners, and there's another theory, which I think is a strong theory, that this presidency may also be a setup for Raisi to fail for a potential succession because presidents in Iran, usually they come in, they become the most popular figure with a very strong mandate. But by the end of their eighth year, their second term, even someone as popular as Khatami, they usually are put in a position of unpopularity. They leave um, with not as much as they came in. There's usually this hopelessness in any form of uh, change or reform that people expected from them. So this could potentially be, and these may be competing camps. So both of these theories could be uh, true simultaneously. That one part is trying to groom Raisi for a succession. And we know Khamenei was a president before he became Supreme Leader. So this is the natural stepping stone for someone to become a successor, an unknown figure to at least be president um, uh, before a potential succession scenario. And there could be another camp who are seeing this as a strategy to set him up for failure and basically eliminate him as a potential success successor to Ayatollah Khamenei. Thank you so much, Nagar. Um, guys, I have another question from the Q&A. Uh, it is a good question and a little bit amusing. Who wants to take this? Why Raisi and not another hardliner? He doesn't seem to be educated enough. Who wants to take that? Any takers of Vijan, please go ahead. I'm the only Azeri in the group, I think. Uh, there. <laughs> um, I'm half Azeri. Okay. If we agree that he's maybe, I wouldn't use the word educated, but maybe not as prepared, that makes him more um, dependent on others. And, and he can be just a, a face for, for a number of interest groups or networks who would put him in, in, in that position and prepare him for maybe a higher position, but then also control him and, and, and influence his decisions in the future. That's why I mentioned the, the, the phenomenon of networks um, who will um, influence him. If, if he would have been a very uh, experienced politician, he could have outmaneuvered some of these networks behind him. I think that's also uh, an important factor. The second factor is if he's being groomed for uh, as, as the next Supreme Leader, there are certain characteristics that the Supreme Leader must have. I mean, not in, in written law, but being a Sayyid helps. 
not being as old as some of the other ayatollahs and grand ayatollahs helps. Uh, having one uh, a position like the president through elections helps. So these are these are important factors. So you could have you could have not brought in a, a, a non-cleric or even a cleric that who is not a say yet. So there are some some attributes that are important in the process as well. Thank you. I'm going to take another question from the Q and A segment, and this is going back again. Uh, I'm sorry. May I make a quick observation uh, between Bijan and Negar's comments? Um, what's interesting for me is that uh, one wonders what Raisi's role in this is. His agency, if he's being manipulated to fall, does he not realize this? If he's being groomed, what? How active is he in that sort of grooming process? Or again, is he a, a someone who's just being carried along by forces? as both pro and against. That remains an open question for me. I've heard these kind of observations, which are very uh, important, I think, but uh, I do wonder how much of his own personal <laughs> independence comes into play here. Uh, thank you, Sharon. Uh, I, so I have this question from the uh, Q&A segment. Let me just bring it here because not all of it appears. Uh, this is going back to, uh, I suppose, not just the JCPOA, but the relationship between Tehran and Washington has the Biden administration been stringent enough in reversing Trump-era foreign policy measures, in your opinion, or is the U.S. government affected by some kind of ratchet effect? I'll put that to Sina. Thank you. Um, so this goes to the role of American pressure, maximum pressure, and kind of this political creating and contributing to this kind of political situation we've seen unfolding in Iran and with the hardliners consolidating power. And Biden, you know, he promised to go back into the JCPOA and he did have the option, you know, early on in his administration to kind of announce, you know, that the U.S. and many groups called on him to do this, to, to announce that the U.S. was going back and it would kind of make a lot of goodwill overtures and lift some sanctions and kind of get back into the deal quickly. But, you know, we saw months and months of no progress. Uh, in April, we saw that these kind of uh, the Vienna talks to go back to the JCPOA began. And, you know, very close to the Iran's election season jump starting. And it got caught up in that. And, you know, we haven't had any any deal so far. And, you know, no real tangible sanctions relief for Iran at all. You know, despite Biden's promises to not only go back into the JCPOA, but when we saw that the pandemic started last year, that Biden actually called on Trump, you know, then presidential candidate Biden called on Trump to offer Iran humanitarian aid and, to kind of ease some of these pressures on the Iranian people who have been under immense, immense uh, economic pressure. And, you know, the Iranian middle class has shrunk and the Iranian civil society has, has really been severely weakened. But Biden himself has not really done uh, any tangible steps to kind of ease this pressure so far. And a lot, you know, and a lot of these hardliners actually in the past several months have been, you know, feeling vindicated because of that. But I think when it comes to the role of, of maximum pressure, it, it cannot be uh, downplayed. You know, if for, when Rouhani and then, you know, when the JCP was negotiated in 2015, and if it was properly enacted, you know, if we imagine that Iran had 5 to 10% GDP growth from 2015 to 2021, uh, very hard to imagine, you know, that the hardliners would have been comfortable enough and in the position where they could have, you know, openly rigged the elections the way they did. And, you know, totally sidelined their moderates and reformist rivals, which is, you know, to be granted, is, has long been their aim. You know, they've long wanted to, to enact this project, but maximum pressure gave them the, this historic opportunity to really consolidate power. 
Thank you, Sina. We're fast approaching the end of this panel discussion. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give all the panelists one minute each to add their conclusive remarks. Uh, and I will be putting you on a timer here because I want to make sure we do it right at um, 1800 Paris time. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'll go with, I'll start with Negar. Negar, do you have any conclusive uh, remarks uh, for this panel discussion? Go. So, so I'm overall, and I saw a question that this is sort of an answer to, I expect um, Iran's political direction to take a more hard line um, stance, both in foreign policy, especially when it comes to the West and also domestics. Uh, someone in the Q&A has asked about um, domestic issues. I think the political space will likely close further. We'll see more of the securitization um, of the state, the civil society um, will probably not be able to uh, thrive and develop. Um, and um, I just think if Raisi's past record uh, has shown that this conservative view will be something that will be uh, brought into both uh, the domestic scene in Iran as well as uh, the foreign policy outreach, depending on who he appoints, obviously, as his senior um, post in the cabinet, but I think it will take more of a hardline direction. That was perfect. One minute on the dot. Thank you very much, Nagar. Next, we're going to Sherin. Okay, I'm going to end with uh, what is my hottest take on uh, elections in Iran, which is um, I think the protesting citizen, the savvy voter, these are all products of the system, right? Um, you know, the sophistication of the Iranian citizen who votes comes from their participation. They found a way to disrupt this, what is frankly a dishonest game, right? I think we can all agree on that from the inside out. Um, and I think the, really the question I have for myself and for the panelists is, you know, even if this, is this social contract, this sort of implicit uh, contract between state and society that's persisted for the last almost 20 years now is ending, you know, what will the lessons that the citizens have learned, how will that carry over to the next sort of set of rules that are kind of emerging, possibly emerging? Um, I mean, personally, I think that uh, memory and experience will remain uh, in, in the possession of the, the voting public. And this is going to create a, a kind of difficult situation for the ruling authorities. Bijan alluded to this earlier. Uh, voting is not the only thing that Iranians learn by participating. They also learn about protesting. This is very much part of the ethos or the mentality of the regime of the Nizam. And I think this, the, the state has also learned from its engagement with society, but it still hasn't quite learned how to, outside of the use of over, overuse of violence, uh, to contain the passions or the interests of the public uh, in terms of what they do on the streets. So I'll end with that. Thank you so much, Sherwin. Bijan Khajapur. So I, I'll, I'll take, I'll borrow the social contract from Sherwin and I uh, will say that uh, I do expect uh, uh, attempts to increase legitimacy because this was a, a illegitimate political process to pre present Raisi or select Raisi as the next president. But there will be attempts to increase legitimacy in other areas, in the economic, maybe social, cultural fields. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, on the local council politics uh, level. Uh, and that's what we have to watch, two parallel processes, one limiting space at national, uh, national level and one may hopefully opening space on local level. Uh, and just one final sentence, the Islamic Republic 
will not remain a static phenomenon. This fluidity will continue. Uh, within the presidential debates, there was a lot of disagreement between Jalili and Raisi, even though we think they belong to the same faction. So expect some new levels of disagreement as well. Thank you, Bijan. Sinatusi, as a representative of NIAC here at this panel, can you offer your closing remarks, please? Thank you. Uh, I would say when it comes to U.S. policy towards Iran, that, you know, America cannot double down on a failed policy. And maximum pressure failed in every way. You know, it's, it, it, it only it resulted in Iran's nuclear program expanding and the region becoming more unstable. It took the U.S. and Iran to the brink of war. It really decimated the Iranian people, impoverished them, shrunk the middle class, weakened civil society, and, and helped contribute to this you know, consolidation of power we've seen by this, you know, a lot of the most authoritarian elements inside Iran. So President Biden, you know, by going back into the JCPOA, can not only put the lid on Iran's nuclear program, but by you know, easing these sanctions, can give Iranian civil society air, you know, kind of room to breathe and empower you know, the Iranian people if they become more economically strong and prosperous, they can better kind of uh, advocate and kind of Iranian civil society would be strengthened to the degree where it could, you know, be a force for change. And, you know, and I, 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 I'm also very hopeful and I hope that President Biden really, before Raisi comes to office, that this case of the dual national prisoners inside Iran, people like Siamak Namazi and Balgat Namazi and, and many others that that you know, and agree, that their release is prioritized, and that we can have an agreement on that front soon. That's a really important note to leave it on. Thank you so much, Sina. So uh, that brings us to the end of the discussion. Unless anyone else has anything to contribute, I'd really like to thank the speakers: Negar Mortazavi, Sherin Malikzadeh, Bijan Khajapur, of course, uh, Sina Tusi, and I'd personally like to thank uh, Nayak for inviting me to moderate this really. Uh, insightful and timely conversation. Thank you all so much. Wishing you a lovely day or evening, wherever you may be. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was a special episode of the Iran podcast recorded at a panel discussion hosted by the National Iranian American Council. And thank you for listening to another episode of our podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Twitter at Iran Podcast. You can also support our work by going to anchor.fm slash the Iran Podcast and clicking on support. Until next time, goodbye.